0: unshackled of pacific garden mission presents history's greatest sermons where we share the personal history of godly men who brought forth the truth of the gospel in powerful sermons to a world long ago can you imagine sitting at the feet of one of history's greatest preachers and hearing their greatest sermons picture yourself on an old wooden pew in charles spurgeon's london church
1: great faith must have great
0: trials. Or perched in a tree in the fields of a George Whitfield revival.
1: Take care of your life, and the Lord will take care of your
0: death. Or striding down the sawdust trail at a Billy Sunday prayer meeting. Christianity means a lot more than church membership. Whatever the scene, hearing these great sermons from the past will be as fitting to today's Christians as the day they were first preached. And now, here are your hosts, Tim Lundeen and Kelly Robbins. Hey,
2: welcome back to History's Greatest Sermons. Now, just a reminder, this is going to be a part 2. It is of Charles Spurgeon's sermon Law and Grace. If you missed the first part, You can actually hear History's Greatest Sermons on the Unshackled app.
3: Excellent.
2: So if you go to, I guess, Google Play Store, Apple Store, wherever, wherever you access your apps, you can download, and I highly recommend you do, the Unshackled app. And you should see History's Greatest Sermons there. When you do, look up Charles Spurgeon and take a listen to part one. Otherwise, this will be
3: out of context. This is a flow through. Yeah. You're going to want to hear both anyway. They're good. My humble opinion. (laughs) Just to recap, part one establishes the basis of the preaching text. Yes. The preaching text. And Spurgeon spends quite a bit of time looking at the law and some time looking at grace. But it is the balance of the two. We have to have the law because without it, we cannot understand the need for grace. Yes, And he is so good at bringing this down to an every person level. So we can understand in our own human nature. I love the place where in the first part, He talks about even those who've never, ever heard the word of God, have never heard Jesus mentioned, ever. They still have an acknowledgement of light and dark in their souls. They have the witness of nature and their own natures. And their own
2: conscience. Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. That says, this is right. This is wrong. I know there's something there. There's something here that is condemning what's going on. I know it. It's built into us. Exactly. And that's the law. Mm -hmm. It is there. This is going to be part two of his sermon titled Law and Grace. Again, it was delivered August 26, 1855 at the New Park Street Chapel in Southwark. Let's listen in to Charles Spurgeon.
1: The entrance of the law into the heart. We have to deal carefully when we come to deal with internal things. It is not easy to talk about this little thing, the heart. When we begin to meddle with the law of their souls, many become indignant. But we do not fear their wrath. We are going to attack the hidden man this morning. The law entered their hearts that sin might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. The law causes the offense to abound by revealing sin to the soul. Once the Holy Spirit applies the law to the conscience, secret sins are dragged to light. Little sins are magnified to their true size, and things that appeared harmless become exceedingly sinful. Before that dread searcher of the hearts and trier of the passions makes his entrance into the soul, it appears righteous, just lovely and holy. But when he reveals the hidden evils, the scene is changed. Offences that were once styled slight trifles, fancies of youth, follies, indulgences, or little slips, then appear in their true colours as breaches of the law of God deserving appropriate punishment. John Bunyan, will explain my meaning by an extract from his famous allegory. Then the interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him into a very large parlour that was full of dust because it was never swept. After he had reviewed it a little while, the interpreter called for a man to sweep. Now, when he began to sweep, the dust began to fly so abundantly about that Christian was almost choked by it. Then, said interpreter to a damsel that stood by, bring hither water and sprinkle the room. When she had done this, the room was swept and cleansed with pleasure. Then said Christian, what does this mean? The interpreter answered, this parlor is the heart of a man that was never sanctified by the sweet grace of the gospel. The dust is his original sin, an inward corruption, which have defiled the whole man. He that began to sweep at first is the law. She who brought the water and sprinkled it is the gospel. Now, whereas you saw that as soon as the first began to sweep, The dust flew about so that the room could not be cleansed by him. That you were almost choked therewith is to show thee that the law, instead of cleansing the heart by its working from sin, revives sin, puts strength into it, and it increases it in the soul, even as the law discovers and forbids sin, for it does not give power, to subdue. Again, as you saw, the damsel sprinkled the room with water, after which it was cleansed with pleasure. This is to show you that when the gospel comes in the sweet and precious influences thereof to the heart, then, I say, even as you saw the damsel lay the dust by sprinkling the floor with water, so is sin vanquished and subdued and the soul made clean through the faith of it and consequently fit for the king of glory to inhabit. The heart is like a dark cellar full of lizards, cockroaches, beetles and all kinds of reptiles and insects which we do not see in the dark but the law opens the shutters and lets in the light and so we see the evil. Since the law makes sin apparent, it is written that the law makes the offence to abound. Once again, the law, when it comes into the heart, shows us how very black we are. Some of us know that we are sinners. It is very easy to say it. The word sinner has only two syllables in it, and there are many who frequently have it on their lips, but who do not understand it. They see their sin, but it does not appear exceedingly sinful until the law comes. We think there is something sinful in our actions, but when the law comes, we detect their abomination. Has God's holy light ever shone into your souls? Have you had the fountains of your great depravity and evil broken up and been awakened up sufficiently to say, Oh God, I have sinned. Now, if you have your hearts broken up by the law, you will find the heart is more deceitful than the devil. I can say this of myself. I am very much afraid of my heart. It is so bad. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things. The devil is one of the things. Therefore, it is worse than the devil and desperately wicked. How many do we find who are saying, well, I, I trust I have a very good heart deep down. Things may be a little amiss at the top, but I am very good-hearted at the bottom. If, if you saw some fruit on the top of a basket that was not quite good, would you buy the basket? Because they told you, "Oh yes, but they are good at the bottom. No, no, no. You would say they are sure to be the best at the top. And if they are bad there, they are sure to be rotten below. There are many people whose friends would say, he is good-hearted deep down. He would get drunk sometimes, but he is very good-hearted underneath it all. I'll never believe it. Men are seldom estimated better than they seem to be. If the outside of the cup or platter is clean, the inside may be dirty. But if the outside is impure, you may always be sure that the inside is no better. Most of us put our goods in the window, display all our good things in the front, and hide the bad things behind. If the law has entered into our souls, let us, instead of making excuses about ourselves, about the badness of our hearts, bow down and say, Oh, the sin! Oh, the uncleanness, the blackness, the awful nature of our crimes! The law entered, that the offense may abound. The law reveals the exceeding abundance of sin by revealing to us the depravity of our nature. We are prepared to charge the serpent with our guilt or to insinuate that we go astray from the force of ill example. But the Holy Spirit dissipates these dreams by bringing the law into the heart. Then the fountains of the great deep are broken up. The chambers of the imagery are opened and the innate evil of the very essence of fallen man is discovered. The law cuts into the core of the evil. It reveals the seats of the malady and informs us that the leprosy lies deep within. Oh, how the man abhors himself when he sees all his rivers of water turned into blood and loathsomeness creeping over all his being. He learns that sin is no flesh wound, but instead a stab in the heart. He discovers that the poison has impregnated his veins, lies in his very marrow, and has its fountain in his inmost heart. Now he loathes himself and wishes to be healed, Actual sin seems not half so terrible as his sinful nature and at the thought of what he is, he turns pale and gives up salvation by works as an impossibility. Having thus removed the mask and shown the desperate case of the sinner, the relentless law, causes the offence to abound yet more by bringing home the sentence of condemnation. It mounts the judgment seat, puts on the black cap, and pronounces the sentence of death. With a harsh, unpitying voice, it solemnly thunders forth the words, CONDEMNED ALREADY. It bids the soul prepare its defence, Knowing well that all apology has been taken away by its former work of conviction, the sinner is therefore speechless, and the law, with frowning looks, lifts up the veil of hell and gives the man a glimpse of torment. The soul feels the sentence is just, that the punishment is not too severe, and that it has no right to expect mercy. It stands quivering, trembling, fainting, and intoxicated with dismay until it falls prostrate in utter despair. The sinner puts the rope around his own neck, arrays himself in the attire of the condemned, and throws himself at the foot of the king's throne but with one thought I am vile. And with one prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Nor does the law cease its operations even here, for it renders the offense yet more apparent by revealing the powerlessness occasioned by sin. It not only condemns, but it also actually kills He who once thought that he could repent and believe at pleasure finds in himself no power to do either the one or the other. When Moses smites the sinner, he bruises and mangles him with the first blow, but at the second or a third, the sinner falls down as one dead. I myself have been in such a condition that if heaven could have been purchased by a single prayer, I would have been damned, for I could no more pray than I could fly. Moreover, when we are in the grave that the law has dug for us, we feel as if we did not feel, and we grieve because we cannot grieve. The dread mountain lies upon us, making it impossible to stir hand or foot, and when we would cry for help, our voices refuse to obey us. In vain the minister cries, repent, our hard hearts will not melt. In vain he exhorts us to believe, The faith of which he speaks seems to be as much beyond our capacity as the creation of the universe. Ruin is now become ruin indeed. The thundering sentence is in our ears. Condemned already. Another cry follows it. Dead in trespasses and sins. And a third, more awful and terrible, mingles its horrible warning, the wrath to come, the wrath to come. In the opinion of the sinner, he is now cast out as a corrupt carcass. He expects each moment to be tormented by the worm that never dies and to lift up his eyes in hell. Now is mercy's moment. And we turn the subject from condemning law to abounding grace. Listen, O heavy-laden condemned sinner, while I preach... In my master's name, superabounding grace. Grace excels sin in its measure and capacity. Though your sins are many, mercy has many pardons. Though they exceed the stars, the sands, and the drops of dew in their number, one act of remission can cancel all. Your iniquity, though a mountain will be Cast into the midst of the sea. Your blackness will be washed out by the cleansing flood of your Redeemer's gore. Mark, I said your sins. And I meant to say so, for if you are now a law condemned sinner, I know you to be a vessel of mercy by that very sign. Oh, hellish sinners, abandoned profligates, Outcasts of society, outcasts from the company of sinners themselves, if you acknowledge your iniquity, here is mercy, broad, ample, free, immense, and infinite. Remember this, O sinner if all the sins that men have done in will in word in thoughts in deed since words were made or time began were laid on one poor sinner's head the stream of jesus precious blood applied removes the dreadful load yet again grace excels sin in another thing sin shows us its parent and tells us our heart is the father of it but grace surpasses sin there and shows the author of grace the king of kings the law traces sin to our heart grace traces its own origin to god and In his sacred breast I see eternal thoughts of love to me. Oh, Christian, what a blessed thing grace is, for its source is in the everlasting mountains. Sinner, if you are the vilest in the world... If God forgives you this morning, you will be able to trace your pedigree to him. For you will become one of the sons of God and have him always for your father. I imagine you as a wretched criminal before the judge, and I hear mercy cry, discharge him. He is pale, lame, sick, broken, heal him. He is part of a vile race, Lo!" I will adopt him into my family. Sinner, God takes you for his son. Though you are poor, God says, I will take you to be mine forever. You will be my heir. There is your fair brother. Through a blood tie, he is one with you. Jesus is your actual brother. Yet, how did this change come about? Was it not an act of mercy? Grace did much more abound. Grace has put me in the number of the Saviour's family. Grace outdoes sin, for it lifts us higher than the place from which we fell. And again, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, because the sentence of the law may be reversed, but that of grace never can. I stand here and feel condemned, but I have a hope that I may be acquitted. There is a dying hope of acquittal still left, but when we are justified, There is no fear of condemnation. I cannot be condemned once I am justified. I am fully absolved by grace. I defy Satan to lay hands on me if I am a justified man. The state of justification is an unalterable one and is permanently united to glory. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. and make you feel your love for free grace, and all this is yours. Once your crimes have been blotted out, you will never be charged with them again. The justification of the gospel is no minion sham which may be reversed if you stray in the future. No, once the debt is paid, it cannot be demanded twice. The punishment, once endured, cannot again be inflicted. Saved, 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 entirely saved by divine grace, you may walk without fear the wide world over. And yet, once more, just as sin makes us sick and grievous and sad, so grace makes us far more joyful and free sin causes one to go about with an aching heart until he feels as if the the world would swallow him or the mountains hanging above would drop upon him this is the effect of the law the law makes us sad the law makes us miserable but poor sinner grace removes the evil effects of sin upon your spirit If you do believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will go out of this place with a sparkling eye and a light heart. I remember well the morning when I stepped into a little place of worship, as miserable almost as hell could make me, for I was ruined and lost. I had often been at chapels where they spoke of the law, but I heard not the gospel. But this day was different. I sat down in the pew as a chained and imprisoned sinner. The word of God came, and then I went out free. Though I went in miserable as hell, I went out elated and joyful. I I sat there black, but I went away whiter than driven snow. God said, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Why not accept this as your position, my friend, if you feel yourself a sinner now? All he asks of you is that you feel your need of him. This you have done, and now the blood of Jesus lies before you. The law has entered that sin might abound. If you acknowledge your state and accept his mercy, then you are forgiven. Only believe it. Elect, only believe it. It is the truth that you are saved. Finally, poor sinner, has sin made you unfit for heaven? Grace will make you a fit companion for angels and will make the just perfect. You who are lost and destroyed by sin today will one day find yourself with a crown upon your head and a golden harp in your hand, exalted to the throne of the Most High. Think, O sinner, if you repent, there is a crown reserved for you in heaven." You who are guiltiest, most lost and depraved, are you condemned in your conscience by the law? Then I invite you in my master's name to accept pardon through his blood. He suffered in your stead. He has atoned for your guilt, and you are acquitted. You are an object of his eternal affection, the law. Is but a schoolmaster to bring you to Christ. Cast yourself on him. Fall into the arms of saving grace. No works are required, no fitness, no righteousness, no doings. You are complete in him who said, It is finished. <laughs>
2: That was Charles Spurgeon and his sermon Law and Grace portrayed by Brad Armacost. Now this sermon we just heard is years before something called the downgrade controversy. He had to split from his leading denomination because they were questioning the authority of God's word. Even then there was something of a theological decay in Britain at this time and they were abandoning the authority of God's Word, the inspiration, the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, people began rejecting the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. and it was affecting him so much, he had to leave his denomination. Yes. Nothing against whatever denominations there are, but at that time, that was the controversy.
3: Well, and his conviction came of his time in prayer and in the Word. And by refusing to leave either of those two, that's how he remained straight. Mm-hmm. And he never did veer from that. Yeah. I can do that. You can do that. We can do that today. In fact, God calls us to do that. It's it's almost too simple.
2: Yeah. And one of the things I appreciated just immensely, listening to Charles Spurgeon, reading him again, is just every other paragraph is thick with scripture. It means so much. It's not just that it means something to him, it means the truth Yes. It should mean the truth to all of us. Yes. I really feel like that's something worth taking away from this. Yes, This has been History's Greatest Sermons, an Unshackled production of Pacific Garden Mission, produced and directed by Timothy Gregory. To hear more Unshackled content, you can visit our app, downloaded for free at any of the major app stores. For more information, visit unshackled.org. Join us next time as we experience another one of History's Greatest Sermons.